Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Ben Fountain, author of the novel Devil Makes Three. I think it's the writer's job, the, the job of the fiction writer, the poet, and also a certain kind of nonfiction, absolutely, to not just convey information, but to make it an experience for the reader. We'll be back with Ben Fountain after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours, is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. 
please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of the interview. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My guest today is nonfiction and fiction writer Ben Fountain, whose novel Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk won the National Book Critics Circle Award and was a finalist for the National Book Award. His story collection, Brief Encounters with Che Guevara, won the Penn Hemingway Award. His nonfiction book, Beautiful Country, Burn Again, Democracy, Rebellion, and Revolution, is set over the course of 2016 and reports on the year in politics in the United States. Fountain is a former lawyer and lives in Dallas. His new novel, Devil Makes Three, is set in Haiti in 1991 as a violent coup leads to the fall of President Aristide. Because of the political strife, protagonist Matt Amaker is forced to abandon his beachfront scuba diving business, which he owns with his Haitian friend, Alex. Instead, they team up to search shipwrecks for buried treasures. Meanwhile, Alex's sister Misha, who Matt is in love with, stumbles into an arms trafficking ring masquerading as a U.S. government humanitarian aid office. And CIA case officer Shelley Graver finds herself doing undercover work that is anything but morally straightforward. We began the discussion with me asking Ben Fountain if he could pinpoint in his life how or when he became interested in social justice and politics. That goes back, as best I can tell, to the very beginning. And I can't explain why. It's just something I was born with. My very first memories are in Chapel Hill. My dad was getting his PhD. Um, Those are very blurry. But we moved to a town in eastern North Carolina called Elizabeth City when I was three. And my dad became superintendent of public schools there. And he led the integration of the public schools there in the early 60s. But um, uh, to me, it was a big town. Now, I went there a few years ago, and it's so small. But but there was black and white. And everybody was mixed together. I mean, everybody, like, there was a lot of intermixing. But there was a white part of town and a black part of town. And the black part of town was poor. And I can remember, I mean, but they were right there together. But I remember as a kid, you know, my mom would drive me through that part of town and I would feel bad. I would just feel, I would feel sad. I would feel melancholy. This is the emotional memory of, of you know, from earliest age and seeing the kids like, it would be cold outside and, and, you know, the black kids, you know, they were, they were dressed in, you know, just, you know, not suitable clothing for the weather. 
And then also driving through eastern North Carolina, the rural parts, and just seeing the dire poverty there, some white, but mostly black. And I mean, kids running around naked in in the yards and obviously just desperate poverty. And as a little kid, it made me sad. It troubled me. It bothered me. And, um, uh, you know, so I'm speaking to you as frankly as I can. This, this, these are my emotional memories. And, um, and I think they're authentic. I think they're true. But, um, so from earliest age, I mean, I, I guess I was noticing these things, seeing these things and they were affecting me. That's the best I can say. Do you feel like that is part of your job as a writer is to translate intense feeling into words? Um, I've been having some conversations lately on this podcast about how books make you think and make you feel like not all books make you do both. And I'm curious if you try to go for that. Absolutely. I think it's the writer's job, the, the job of the fiction writer the poet, and also a certain kind of nonfiction, absolutely, to not just convey information, but to make it an experience for the reader. And I think that's that's what changes, changes us in our lives, our experiences. I mean, sometimes information will change us, but more often it's the experiences we have in our lives. And I mean, you're a book person, I'm a book person, and I expect pretty much everybody listening to us, y'all are book people. And so I would hazard a guess that virtually everybody, you know, listening has read a book and it was an experience. It wasn't just reading a book. It, it changed you in this profound way. And, um, and that's what the best writers do to us. And, you know, it varies from person to person, book to book. And also at certain moments in our lives, we are more willing to be cracked open than others. We're more open. Like when we're young, you know, we're, we're I think we're much more, you know, willing to take things in. And also when we've had a crisis in our life, you know, we've been cracked open. We're looking for answers. Um, so I think, I think books can definitely do that. That's their job um, to broaden us to to make us more aware of you know who we are where we are in the world what the world is around us why the world works the way it does and um so i feel like it's absolutely my job as a writer to try to do all those things starting at the level of the line and and working up from there do you feel like your initial impetus to go to Haiti, I know you've been there more than 50 times now, but I know you became fascinated with it, was also a quest to maybe have that breaking open, that sometimes when we get more comfortable, we don't have that experience that we have when we're young, and sometimes traveling can do that? I really think that's part of it. Um, I had quit practicing law a couple of years before to write, and um and I'd always, I'd lived this very directed life up to that point. Like I was, a, I was a good student, you know, I towed the line. I went straight from college to law school, did well there, got a job at a big corporate firm. Um, 
And uh, I'd led this very white middle class, you know, upwardly mobile, striving life. And then at the age of 30, I turned away from the law. You know, I just left it to write. And people thought I was nuts. Um, and I probably was. <laughs> I mean, because, I mean, anyway. Um, so I've been writing a couple of years and I started paying attention to Haiti. Just uh, it intrigued me. Um, the things that were happening there. And the more I paid attention, the more I felt drawn to the place. And so at the age of 33, I went. I'd never been out of the country and um, had a little bit of French left over from college. Didn't know a soul in Haiti. And um, and my wife said, OK, you can go for a week. But you better come back. And um, we had two small kids at the time. And so, and so I just showed up one day and I think. Part of it was intellectual quest, trying to understand that place. Part of it was, um, you know, I also had an idea for a novel. So I was trying to do and see certain specific things. But also, I was looking for a shock to my system. I needed to be shocked out of this reality that I'd lived in for 33 years. I needed to try to engage with this other reality that's out there that you know, billions of people on the planet live in, and that is the reality of you're getting by on a dollar or two a day. What is that reality? How does it come about? Why do we have, you know, such things in the world? I mean, there's never been more wealth in the world than it is now. The United States has never been richer than it is now, and yet we have this huge disparity of realities, you know, for people living on the same planet. So all of that was was propelling me to Haiti in 1991. And I guess it was a powerful thing in me because I went and I kept going. It seems so intrinsically linked to the experience you had as a kid seeing the neighborhood. Yeah, in retrospect, right. And so who knows how much how much I am reverse engineering, you know, my earliest memories and and I will allow for that possibility. And yet I have very specific memories of of certain moments being in the car with my mom. And, you know, the sensation, the memory sensation is one of sadness and, and unsettledness, being troubled. And so, I, you know, you could draw a pretty straight line from that to going to Haiti at age 33. I wasn't thinking about that at the time. You know, I was just following a feeling. Yeah, I think it's so interesting, too, because I know you've been back so many times that you could have this fascination in a place in the world where you know nobody. And I'm assuming now that you have a pretty nice community there, that it's kind of amazing to, like, look at the globe and think, if I'm, if I'm like, determined to go to this place, I can build something there. That's so beautiful and mind-blowing to me that you, I'm sure you have community and friends there, right? Yeah, it is mind blowing, isn't it? You just show up in a place one day and you hang out, you show interest, you don't push it. You you are sincerely interested. Um, you sincerely care and uh and people of goodwill, you know, you find them and people who are interested in you. And um I mean they're out there. I mean, so I went that first trip I met a few people. I went back, you know, met a few more people. You know, the network spreads out. 
in this really nice natural way. And um, so now I've got two godchildren in Haiti. Um, I will say this, a lot of my friends are either deceased or they're living in the U.S. A lot of people have made their way to the U.S. The last five years in Haiti have just been a disaster. And so people who can get out are getting out. But I still have quite a few friends there. It's very tough there right now. And I haven't been there in five years. But yeah, a real community there. It's been an ongoing life experience for me. And one I, I feel really grateful for and lucky you know, for. But yeah, you go to a place, you stick yourself out there, things start to happen. So Devil Makes Three happened. So basically, Devil Makes Three is the story of this young man named Matt. And Matt is a blonde, which means he's white. He is there. Um, his partner is a young man named Alex, who is Haitian, who comes from a pretty well-to-do, well-respected family. And they have a scuba company together. And this is in 1991. And it's right, kind of it opens on the eve of the coup where the military took Aristide out of power. And this is the aftermath. And we follow what happens to Matt. He loses his scuba operation with Alex. He is beat up by some of the the armed military, which is called the VOD. And at the same time, we're also following Audrey, who is a CIA agent there to supposedly help. She gets involved with arms dealings. She's definitely got some precarious position with what the U.S. is doing there at this time. What is the U.S.'s role in potentially bringing um, the president back? And this is also happening when there's a presidential election and we end with Clinton. And, and I should say that Alex and Matt get arrested and end up in prison because they're treasure seekers. Instead of being scuba divers, they go to seek treasures. And there's some very dangerous and precarious weight around that because if they find gold, it could really fund the military government to a level that they can't really operate at now because of embargoes. And so everyone in the country is also really suffering. There's higher incidences of any kind of sickness and gang violence. You're following the politics, the social issues, the corruption going on. How, how did I do? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, so the historical context is is actual. Um, and I stay as close to the history as I can. And uh, and so my characters are moving through this very fraught situation, trying to make their way. And I mean, what one of the things that interested me about Haiti going in and interested me all, you know, all through my years there and continues to do so is, you know, these huge structures of power, economic, political and they determine so much of our lives. And here we are, you know, the little people, we're trying to eke out some measure of agency and self-determination where we can live a decent life according to our own terms. And I think we're all doing that these days. And, and maybe the existential, the core question is, are we going to live as human beings or, we, or are we going to be forced to live as economic units? units of production. And in a situation like Haiti during the coup years, that, that difficulty, that challenge becomes 
tremendously more acute um, because you're living under an extremely oppressive military regime, dire economic conditions. And so how, how do you live a decent life then? How do you live, how do you chart some sort of autonomy and self-determination living under those conditions? And so that was the situation I was trying to explore and develop in Devil Makes Three. Now, there's one more main character in Devil Makes Three, and that is Alex's sister, Misha. It's his little sister. She's around 22 years old. She's an extremely precocious student. She's an intellectual. She's a nerd. She's a book nerd like us. And she's getting her PhD at Brown University in um, studies of the Black Atlantic, which is a new field of scholarship. And she ends up back in Haiti because of the family situation. And she decides to stay. She takes a leave of absence from Brown and she ends up working at a hospital. Meanwhile, Matt, he's, he's got this huge crush on Misha, which is not reciprocated. Um, he's carrying a torch for her throughout the book and she's pretty dismissive of him. He's like, oh, she's, she feels like, oh, here's another dumb blonde, you know, who, who, I mean, just, I mean, Matt is basically a random American dude who ends up in Haiti. He's a dive guy and he gets caught up in this situation that is way above his head, but he's not stupid. He's trying to figure it out. And part of the impetus for him to figure it out is to try to rise to Misha's level. I mean, she's brilliant. She's smart. She's aware of the world. She has some idea of how things work, these large structures, thanks to her scholarship. And so he's trying to follow her. At one point, she gives him a list of 30 books. She says, well, if you want to understand Haiti here, get started with these. And he starts reading them. He's like, by God, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to understand it. And, uh, uh, so anyway, there's that. Also, there's that plot, plot going too. Yeah, and I have some questions about Misha, but I'm I'm curious first, and I I don't even know if it's a fair question to ask because it's complicated. But like, how did you do it? You have information in there and characters talking about literature, philosophy, politics. You're trying to represent uh, the CIA point of view. There's a lot to explain about how complicated the history is, the past leader of Haiti, where they're going, who the different factions are on the ground now. And you also have to wrap this in a story that people want to turn the pages. So how did you hold this all in your head and then put it on the page? Haiti's a complex place. And it seems to me all the complexities of the last 500 years, which are continuing to play out, you know, today. Literally, Haiti's the center of that. It's ground zero for the last 500 years of how the world has gone. And it continues to play out in Haiti in this very direct and brutal way. And it's complicated. It's extremely complicated. And I felt like to write this book properly, I was going to have to do justice to the complexity of it. And yet write a book that could be followed and understood. It might take a bit of energy. I mean, it might take a bit more energy, mental energy than licking an ice cream cone. Um, but, you know, it's the only way I could figure out to write the story is, is it is a bit of a challenging book to read. That's fine with me. You know, all these things that you mentioned, yes, they are all at play 
in Haiti, and they were all at play in the coup years, you know, 1991 to 1994. And I tried to develop them, elucidate them as best I could through the lives of the characters. Instead of me like slapping some kind of polemic onto a plot line, I thought, well, I've got these people. It feels like they have a lot of potential, their situations, who they are. If I can write them properly, all these big things will take care of themselves. Like these things will naturally come to play in the story and 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 hopefully they'll develop in a natural way, in a way that feels right. I mean, so Misha, for instance, she's a scholar of the Black Atlantic. So she's going to see her experiences during these months, like her family experience, her work in the hospital, her work doing these patient records, her work, you know, where she's trying to keep her brother and Matt alive while they're in prison. She's viewing this all through the lens of her scholarship, the scholarship of the Black Atlantic. She can't not do it. So she's going around thinking about Hegel, you know, and and the dialectic of history while she's driving, you know, through traffic in downtown Port-au-Prince. To me, it seems natural. Of course she would. But Haiti keeps her grounded. It's it's she's trying to figure out what is going on. Why is this happening? You know, what confluence of forces and structures. What confluence of history, you know, has brought us to this point, this evil point. And so she is actively engaged in trying to figure it out. You know, I hope it works. I tried my best. It was a heavy lift writing this book. I knew I would have to do things I didn't know if I could do, uh, whether I had the writing chops, whether I had the brain power. But I thought, well, I'm going to try. And it took me seven years. Anyway, so here it is. 530 pages. So do you, when you know that you want to put all those elements of what was happening during those years, do you start thinking about it in plot or start with character? So for instance, you know, Misha was the person that held all this intellectual ideas. And maybe you had the CIA agent who was holding some of the political ideas of the U.S. And you have some generals and colonels and you have a journalist in there. So I'm curious if you thought about characters who could represent these different areas or if you thought about plot first and then the characters came or maybe it's neither. Yeah, you know, I started with Matt and also the fact that the general who was leading the coup regime was a big scuba diver. And so I thought, well, this might be interesting, this culture clash of this kind of random American dude dive guy finds himself called up in these political machinations and eventually, you know, having a relationship with the head of the coup. That was the germ of it. You know, this American dive guy and the general, and they start diving together and they build this relationship. And so it it built out from there. And next came Alex. Matt's business partner, you know, he's the guy in Haiti. He owns the property. He says, Matt, let's start this dive shop together. Then there's Alex's family, the Variels. And then 
Misha came into play and she was a complete surprise. She showed up and she's gorgeous and smart and sexy. And so Matt, he falls for her. And then I thought she would go back to Brown and just kind of, you know, just be on the sidelines. But she stayed and she started, you know, developing in this way that really pleased me. And so then I realized, well, I've got to get into the scholarship of the Black Atlantic. I mean, to do her justice, this is a big part of this is a huge part of who she is. And so that led me into all these things, these, you know, historical things, intellectual things, philosophical things, and to try to do her justice. And so, you know, very little of it was planned. It was more, you know, after you do this work for a while, you hopefully you develop an instinct or an intuition and you feel like this character, it feels like they've got a lot of potential. I don't know what it is, but it just feels like there's a lot of weight behind them. And so I'm going to go with this person for a while and see what happens. Same for situations. It starts with this situation, you know, this relationship between Matt and General Concert, the head of the coup regime. Well, where does this lead? I think it could lead to some really interesting play out in useful ways. And so let's follow this for a while. So very little of it was planned going in. It was more me groping my way along. And as things came up, me having to learn about them, like, you know, medical care in Haiti, you know, what hospitals were going through at that particular time, you know, how the CIA, what they were doing in the country at that time. And, and, and I knew that I would have a CIA, CIA case officer involved because that's so much a part of the story of what was going on then always has been and always will be. And so I knew there would be somebody, you know, involved in that. And so that turns out to be Audrey. So I had to learn a lot and achieve some level of mastery and then try to figure out how to channel it into a novel in a way that 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 is an experience as opposed to information. So when I I was thinking about it last night before this interview and I was like, I know that Matt's the main character, but or maybe you would say he wasn't. But I felt like at the end of the day, this was Misha's book. I felt like she was the nucleus of the book. I, I feel like even though Matt really did develop and learn, I felt like Misha had the biggest change in who she was. I mean, even metaphorically, she went from a life of the mind to the life of the body because she was really an intellectual and ended up working in in medical care. I think she like absorbed what was going on in her country, maybe on that intellectual and feeling level. So just curious about your thoughts about that. I agree with that. It starts as Matt's book and this kind of thrillerish you know, political intrigue sort of story. And, you know, Misha comes in starting with part two. I mean, there are glimpses, shadows, echoes of her in part one, but she comes in directly in part two. And more and more, she moves to the center of the book. I mean, Matt is always, you know, he's always a big part of it. Audrey is always a big part of it. But the center of gravity does seem to move toward Misha increasingly. 
And, you know, I think you make a good point. She's thinking about it, you know, her experience. She's also feeling it in this very profound way. In a way, Misha brings the whole package. I mean, she. this is a full body, full brain experience we're having with Misha. And we see where the book ends. It ends with her. And she is still there on the ground doing her work, carrying water. So, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, because, you know, as many times as you've been to Haiti, you're you're not Haitian. And so to start off with a white main character who is also a visitor to the country probably feels the most comfortable. But it also you also, I think, perform like maybe a feat of magic because in the end, you still offer that story to Misha. Yeah, that's a tricky thing for a person like me to go that extra step and really try to develop Misha's story properly. I mean, she's Haitian American. She was born in New York when her parents were in exile from the Duvalier regime. And so she's got one foot in the U.S. and one foot in Haiti. Do I have the right to go there? And it's something I thought about every day when I was writing this book. I mean, does a white guy like me have the right to write a book about Haiti? Period. My feeling is, well, I don't know. But for me to have the right, if I could ever have the right, I have to earn it by working really hard, learning everything I can, not just learning, you know, book stuff, but emotional stuff, experiential stuff. You know, ultimately, I can't think of what else I would write about. To me, this is the center of the world. I mean, a place like Haiti, where all these things are playing out that have to do with race and power and politics and colonialism, imperialism. There's nothing else that feels, comes anywhere as close, as compelling to me as that. And so that's just where my heart and my head lead me. And it was a powerful thing in me. I'd been going to Haiti for over 20 years before I started this book. And I thought, well, I don't know if I know enough now, but maybe the things I don't know I can try to learn about along the way as I'm writing it. Misha was one of those things. She was one of those people. She came out of nowhere and um, and became this main character in the book. What do you think that is when someone comes out of nowhere? Do you think it's subconscious? Do you think it's like a gift from the universe? Is it magic? Well, what it is is wonderful to, you know, to start off with. It is a source of extreme happiness. I mean, it's also a source of extreme, you know, psychological terror and also represents a lot of work. It's like, uh-oh, here she comes. All right. I really, you know, have to rise to this occasion. But that's one of the wonderful things about doing this kind of work. You don't know. I mean, when I first started writing, I would outline everything because it terrified me not to know where the story was going, where it was supposed to end up. I mean, I had this very lockstep way of thinking, which is probably, you know, partly my nature, partly training in the law. Um, you know, just B follows A, C follows B, so forth. But when you do this kind of work, it's more of an emotional logic you have to pay attention to. And over time, I got I got comfortable with 
starting something and not knowing where it was going to go. And there's tremendous pleasure in that. There's also a certain amount of psychological stress you're living with when you're doing this because you might fail. It, you know, you might invest months or years in something and then it, you just, it doesn't come together. You can't figure it out. So, so Misha was, was part of, you know, this, this psychological stress, also the intense pleasure of writing this book, the way she came in and the way I had to follow her and figure out who she was and what she does. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So that initial kernel that you had, which was this um, relationship between General Concert and mm-hmm. and Matt, because he's a diver and he was the head of the coup in the military. And when uh, Matt and Alex were imprisoned, uh, Matt got a lot of get out of jail free cards because he would go. He was kind of like the pet in a way of the exactly. general, but he wasn't. I mean, he he was being used, but I think they also really looked to him for information. Like they were asking him, will Bill Clinton win? And, you know, just by luck, if he had the right answer. But it was like for him, it was a reprieve from prison. But it was also like a potential lifelong sentence to be there because they wanted to dive and look for gold and go to these treasure hunts and. I thought that was a really interesting aspect and didn't know if you wanted to share more about that. Yeah. um, To me, it was a lot of fun to write, to have this, you know, random American dude who's had one semester of college and then he dropped out. Basically he's a dive bum, you know, he's a dive guy. And, um, and that's exactly the right word to use. He is the general's pet. He is the general's dive pet. And he brings him up on weekends to his beach place. They go out on his boat. They boat. They go dra- diving. And um, Matt, you know, he goes with the flow. He's very pleasant. But then the general starts relying on him for political advice. It's like Matt, you're American. Do you think Clinton's going to win? Okay, when Clinton wins, Matt is Clinton going to invade? And so they start bringing Matt into the Council of Generals, and he's he's kind of like, what the fuck, you know? Here I am. I am now the political advisor to the leader of a sovereign nation. And I'm a college dropout. It's like, man, life is weird. And he's very aware of the stakes. I mean, for one thing, there is intramural rivalry within the FOD, within the armed forces. And so there are different factions. And he's obviously with the general concert faction. But there's another rival faction, which is extremely dangerous. And so he's in a he's in a dangerous situation himself. 
because he is an asset of of the generals, because he is working with the general to find treasure, he represents a threat to the rival military faction. And so his life is in danger. One reason they keep him in prison during the week is to keep him safe. If he's out on the street, he's probably going to get whacked. And, and so Matt, the closer he gets to the general, on one level, he's safer. But on another level, he's, he's increasingly in danger. So he's always looking for a way to get the hell out. I mean, he's looking for an opening, even as he's playing, you know, this kind of go along to get along guy, he's paying close attention to what's happening around him. He's kind of a spy himself. He, he's, you know, in one sense, he's just this kind of dive bum, you know, hey, whatever, you know. But on another level, he he has to get a lot smarter and savvier to survive. There's something about that, and I haven't read Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk since it came out, so I could be rusty, but there's something about that that's sort of similar to where Billy Lynn was also kind of maybe being a pawn in these Hollywood directors' lives that's really satisfying as a reader to read. Like, there's there's a lot going on right in front of you, but then there's so much more under the surface, and sort of writing that with finesse is, um, I don't know if that resonates for you, but. Actually, it does. And I never thought of, I have never thought about them together, Billy Lynn and Matt Amaker. But I mean, Billy is 19 years old. Matt is 26, 27, you know, as the book is taking place. They are kind of a continuum, aren't they? Much different circumstances and situations, but sort of the same sensibility working, you know, not not a whole lot of education, but they have been thrust into a situation where it seems really important, like on the level of survival, to try to figure out the situation that they're in, both at the micro level and the macro level. They're all re- they're all related. And so, I mean, this figuring out why the world is the way it is, how it works the way it does, isn't an intellectual exercise. It's a matter of survival. Yeah, they they both have pluck and they they both seem to me to be people who have a a, a very important option between being a pawn and having agency. Yes, yes. And it may, yeah, it's, and so you notice, I mean, I'm a book nerd and so I'm always slipping in the syllabus you know, and so in Billy Lynn, at at one point, a reporter asked him, "What what what do you read?" And so Billy, who never read much until he got into the army, you know, he he gives us you know five or six books that he's been reading that he's drawn to. Those happen to be books I like a lot. And so all through Devil Makes Three, there's the Haitianology syllabus, and these are the books that have meant a lot to me and that helped me understand or try to understand the country and and the world and why it is the way it is. And so, I mean, you know, certain editors don't like that. Say, so why are you putting, you know, not my current editor, but why why are you mentioning all these books? Well, are not books a part of life? I mean, it's it's part of who we are, a lot of us. And so to, to me, it seems only natural that 
reading a character's reading, if it's a character who reads, that's going to be part of their sensibility and their experience. And so, of course, they're going to show up in the book. I just wanted to make sure I, if you wanted to say anything about the title, Devil Makes Three, or, or Voodoo. Up to you. Yeah, Devil Makes Three. Um, there's a, you know, American folk song, You and Me and the Devil Makes Three. It's, it's really haunting. And I was trying to hit the right title for this book. And um, there are a lot of devils in this book. And uh, and people find themselves walking with the devil, dancing with the devil. Um, and so it just felt right. Devil makes three. Voodoo. All of the accounts of voodoo in this book come from personal experience, except for one. Uh, and and my personal experience of voodoo is that it is an ancient religion. It is it is a it is a true expression of the spiritual nature of humankind. It allows for mystery. It takes account of mystery. It takes account of all the good and evil that's in the world. It um it feels real to me. And I wanted to depict it in the book in a way that reflects my sense of it. It's not this exotic, you know devil thing um this thing that that is too often used for titillation or or you know as a scare as a horror trope but it, it's a living religion and um it's a huge part of haitian life and so i wanted to try to do it justice so i i went pretty deeply into the voodoo in my years in haiti and everything comes from personal experience except for one thing and and that's the voodoo passport that the voodoo priest Duvet gives to Audrey. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Did having so many experiences with voodoo in, in Haiti change your spiritual outlook of the world? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it made me appreciate more the mystery of, of you know, just existence. And um, and the profound wisdom that is out there floating in the air in everyday life, in the lives of everyday people, if we pay attention, if we if we hang around long enough to get off the street and inside the houses and down the alleyways, you never know what you're going to find. And voodoo is what I found. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes, I would like to read the opening of a story by Robert Stone called Under the Pitons. And it's about um, a guy sailing a boat full of drugs and uh, he's trying to make it to Martinique. And I love this story. I read it at least once a year. The first time I read it in Esquire, probably 20 years ago, it just floored me. And I thought, I want to write like this. And even though Devil Makes Three is not a Robert Stone book, I certainly was trying to channel all the power and intensity that Stone brought to his books. And um, so anyway, I'm just going to start and, and I'll read about half a page. All the previous day, they had been tacking up from the Grenadines 
bound for Martinique to return the boat and take leave of Freycinet. Blessington was trying to forget the anxieties of the deal, the stink of menace, the sick ache behind the eyes. It was dreadful to have to smoke with the St. Ventian dealers, stone killers who liked to operate from behind a thin film of fear. Off Dark Head, there was a near thing with a barge under tow. Blessington, stoned at the wheel, his glass of straight demerara beside the binnacle, had calmly watched a dimly lighted tug struggle past on a parallel course at a distance of a mile or so. The moon was newly risen, out of sight behind the island's mountains, silvering the line of the lower slopes. A haze of starlight left the sea in darkness, black as the pit, now and then flashing phosphorescence. They were at least 10 miles offshore. With his mainsail beginning to luff, he had steered the big catch a little farther off the wind, gliding toward the trail of living light in the tug's wake. Only in the last second did the dime drop. He took a quick look over his shoulder. And of course, there came the barge against the moon-traced mountains, a big black homicidal juggernaut, unmarked and utterly unlighted, bearing down on them. Blessington swore and spun the wheel like Ezekiel, as hard to port as it went, thinking that if his keel was over the cable, nothing would save them, that 360 degrees of helm or horizon would be less than enough to escape by. Do you want to say anything more about that? You know, I think reading, writing, art should be a source of joy and pleasure, among other things. And reading that story, reading, writing like that, it just brings me a lot of pleasure. It's it's so precise in its depiction of a certain experience. Um, and yet there's mystery in it, too. There's depths and depths. I mean... The way Stone could evoke a place and a situation in a few lines and and complicate it at the level of the line where you're sensing depths that we haven't gotten gotten to yet. Um, it just makes me very happy to read writing like that. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you liked? Yeah, I, I want to read a passage um, dealing with Misha. She started working at the hospital, and this is the first step in her affair with her boss. She's 22. He's a middle-aged physician named Jean, and they've been circling around each other for about 10 days. And so they end up back at this little hideaway he has. And, I mean, she knows what's going on. I mean, she has full adult awareness of, of what she's undertaking. But sex is hard to write about. It's hard for me to write about to hit that, the correct level of intimacy and uncertainty and um, and just an intensity without going overboard or without underselling it. And also to try to take account of all the emotional stuff that's going on in the midst of you know, you know, what's going on physically. And so, um, and so I'm going to read this passage and there's nothing offensive or prurient in it. I mean, I hope. Then it seemed okay to lie down next to him. They were talking, the joint was going back and forth. They were talking and laughing and then they weren't. This too was a relief, the clothes coming off the bracing shock of all this bare flesh and the landslide sensation of letting go, 
tumbling headfirst into the crush. After doing his initial tour of her body, Jean rose up on one elbow and gazed down the length of her. You are, he whispered, magnificent. Well, he was high, and who didn't look good in soft-focus evening light, but she let herself enjoy the compliment. Jean was, how to put it, comfortable, thorough. She liked that he was a little bit sour in his skin, his trunk and shoulders softening with incipient middle age. Not a boy with a boy's puffed-up pretense and vanity. This was the lived-in body of a serious man. He was gallant in his attentions, lavish with sighs and groans. All the pillows everywhere made for virtuosic twists and angles. Her lack of experience must have showed, and he seemed tremendously pleased about this, that he had to lead her an extra step or two before she got it. So gorgeous, he murmured. I have never, and swear to God, and splendid and flawless. Was all the talk supposed to be a turn-on for the girl? She might have laughed during some of it, but she'd never felt so sincerely appreciated as now nor less fraught about the sexual act. She made a mental note to compare after once the rush of sex chemicals had worn out. How okay would she feel then? Pretty okay, as it turned out, and basically fraughtless, with none of the regret and dislocation she'd felt on previous such occasions. I'll stop there. Do you want to say any more about it? Um, it's a big step for her. I mean, she um, she's had sexual encounters before, but she wasn't ready. She's so intense. She has such a such a finely tuned radar. She's so sensible to the world, so sensitive to the world that that she really wasn't ready for real intimacy or even casual intimacy until now. But she's coming into herself. Partly it's a function of age, but partly it's it's. Like she's testing herself in all kinds of ways and finding that, okay, I can do this. I can do this too. And I'm starting an affair with my boss. Well, I don't know what's going to happen. It's probably not very smart, but here I go. I want to do this. That's all I'll say. Uh, Where do you write? I write in my home office. It used to be our garage. So it didn't have air conditioning or heat for the first 15 years I was writing. So I felt like, you know, being a, a, a you know, a, a self-punishing wasp, you know, white Protestant, I had to suffer. <laughs> and so I would be out here in the summer and the winter, you know, freezing or sweating. But finally, my wife convinced me, all right, this has got to change. And so it has been remodeled and now has heat and air conditioning and, and, um, uh, but it's a nice big space with plenty of light. So I'm very happy working out here. And what do you do or where do you go when you're trying to get away from writing? I sweat. I mean, I get outside and I run, I ride the bike, I do yard work, I swim, you know, if the weather allows. But I've got to be moving. I got to be using my body. I got to be sweating. That that takes my mind away from it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show my work first to my very fine agent, Heather Schroeder. She's been my agent for 23 years and um, has been with me through thick and also very thin. And she's um, a great reader at the level of the line and also, you know, at the larger level. And, and she's extremely loyal 
and savvy, and I trust her completely. How have you dealt with rejection? Rejection, with a capital R, I wrote for 17 years before I got my first book contract. So any advice I give about writing, you might not want to take, (laughs) given my track record, but you know, you're going to take hits doing this kind of work. You might take a lot of hits, um, as I did. You put your head down and you keep writing. And you have to learn to take pleasure in seeing yourself getting stronger, developing, writing better. And um, that's what kept me going. And um, uh, if you're doing the work, if you're getting better, hopefully sooner or later, you'll break through. There's no guarantees. But, you know, a lot at a certain point, I thought, well, I may never get a book out. But I'm getting a lot of satisfaction out of this work. I think I'm getting better. So I'm just going to continue. And what is your favorite word? This week, it's plethora. It's such a funny word. I never use it. But it just it makes me laugh. Plethora. Well, we have a, a, a plethora of mail today. It's just it's such a silly word in a way. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate you taking the time and congratulations on this book. Well, Mitzi, thank you for reading the book, spending all that time with it. And it's been a real pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. If you like today's show with Ben Fountain, author of the novel Devil Makes Three, check out my first interview with Ben about his novel Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 420 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Buzzy Jackson, David James Duncan, and Richard Deming. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.